Hello, and welcome to Failure Peace Theater, a very special episode. Normally, I would be joined by my sister, Catherine, but this week we actually have a special guest. Probably not the last time that we'll have a special guest. And in this case, it is... Heather. My wife. Right? So, we are here on this 13th episode of Failure Peace Theater to talk about the 13th Warrior, the notorious box office bomb directed by John McTiernan, or was it? Starring Antonio Banderas, and from the year of all good movies, that uh, beautiful, beautiful year in cinema history, 1999. Uh, all right, so uh, usually we like to kick it off, since this is uh, Heather's first time, uh, you like to kick it off with a little bit of what we've been watching. And so, in this particular case, I kind of know the answer because we've been watching things <laughs> together. But, uh, so, have you watched or, or consumed any media recently that you found interesting? I've not had a whole lot of time to consume media lately, but I do enjoy an episode or two of Ozark now and then. Yes, we have been uh, sort of... Uh, dogpiling through Ozark when we get the chance, uh, which is always good. I'm enjoying it immensely. Uh, the, as I've mentioned before, the, the connection to the, the general area in which I live is always a little bit sketchy. And, mm -hmm. um, it's certainly not filmed in the Ozarks. I'm very familiar with that area, and uh, nope. nope. But uh, it does catch the, the spirit of the Ozarks Definitely. pretty well. Uh, a lot like Winter's Bone. I had a similar effect uh, yes. sort of bestowed on me from that, watching that movie, especially when she was walking through the high school and just being like, yeah, accurate. Accurate, 100%. But, uh, I do same. love me some Jason Bateman. Yeah, Bateman's really coming around. Um, you know, he's always been there. Um, you know, I, I was a big Teen Wolf 2 fan back in the 80s, but he has uh, certainly turned into a pretty dynamic force, especially in terms of acting, directing, yeah. sort of the whole package at this point. Um, obviously, big career resurgence after Arrested Development, but he has certainly rode that to some really cool places. So yeah. certainly enjoying that as well. Definitely. Um, we uh, did get the chance to watch Bill and Ted face the music. Station. <laughs> That's right, Station. <laughs> um, man, what a great, uh, great little movie. Certainly light, airy, very fun. Um, really, but with heart. Yeah, a tremendous amount of heart. Um, you know, it, it it falls directly in line with the other Bill and Ted movies. It, it does sort of cap them off in a very satisfying way. You know, the story which never felt incomplete. You know, I was never necessarily craving more adventures mm -hmm. of Bill and Ted, but given that we got this one, I think that it does a really good job of sort of bringing together a lot of ideas that the other movies um, sort of played with and, and in a really sort of fun and, and satisfying way. I mean, it's just, you can tell when people are having a good time making yeah. a project like Keanu that. Keanu looked like he was having a blast. Yeah. And Alex Winter, um, they just the, that chemistry was still right there again, but it, it sort of adequately matured in some cool ways. And um, you know, I, I have no doubt that Keanu's current sort of revitalization in his career had a lot to do with them getting it made finally. Right. But I, I'm just glad that it exists. It's it's a, a wonderful little project, and um, 
a lot of really great faces, uh, Kirsten Shaw, and um, you know just a, a ton of, of really great comedic actors that mm-hmm. you will definitely recognize all over the place. I don't want to spoil it uh, in any way because it's it's so new, but man, what a great time! Absolutely recommend uh, Bill and Ted mm-hmm. if you get the chance. Highly recommend. Of course, in this uh, age of no movies. It's just great to have <laughs> anything new to watch. That's uh, it's pretty solid, and, and Bill and Ted certainly fits the bill. Yeah. Um, I I'm still sort of uh, working through a couple of older films for you know future podcasts, things like that. But um, uh, very excited about Mulan next week. Uh, I'm curious yes. to see what that you know sort of uh, boils down to and. You know, it, it really feel you know all the trailers that I've seen. It feels a lot like House of Flying Daggers or um, Hero. You know, it just has this sort of big epic feel that mm-hmm. uh, I would never have associated with Milan. But I'm I'm very interested to see sort of how it plays out. Definitely, I think our kids are gonna love it. I think so. Yeah, they're they're big fans of the animated version. So hopefully, this one will sort of get them too. But all right, well, let's move on to our discussion of the Thirteenth Warrior. Okay. So this is a an absolutely uh, notorious film. Uh, it was a critical and box office failure, produced by Touchstone Entertainment, the adult movie arm of Disney throughout the 90s uh, and a little bit of the 2000s, but has now been mostly retired. I kind of expect to see Touchstone come back now that uh, Disney owns a bunch of the Fox properties and is probably going to pull a bunch of them in to uh, the Disney stable, I think Touchstone may see a bit of a a revitalization as they sort of move the more adult projects over to that and let the Fox brand kind of uh, die on the vine, which seems to be what they they want to do. That's a good point. So 13th Warrior um, is a a long gestating project. The, The film rights for this were actually bought and announced back in 1979. Whoa! Um, yeah, this good is year. is a good year, a good year for <laughs> for both of us. Um, it's uh, is based on a, a mid nineteen seventies book by Michael Crichton called Eaters of the Dead, um, and we'll get into the, the specifics of it here in a sec. But basically, throughout the nineteen nineties, uh, after the incredible success of Jurassic Park, pretty much every single one of Michael Crichton's best selling books were optioned if it hadn't been optioned already and ones that had been optioned were immediately fast-tracked for production. Crichton was hot. Mm -hmm. Um, Crichton had experience in the film industry. Of course, he very famously directed the original uh, and wrote the original version of Westworld, uh, which of course has now come back. Um, He was also riding high in the 90s after the successful launch of ER, which... Oh, that was him? Yeah, Crichton wrote and uh, directed the pilot for ER. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, he used it based on his his own knowledge as a a medical professional, similar to uh, his experience writing Coma and uh, directing that back in the 70s. Uh, So so Crichton had a, a long career that really just kind of exploded in 1993 with Jurassic Park. So we saw a lot of projects come to to fruition very quickly. Of course, we saw uh, we got Congo in the mm-hmm. 1990s, well, maybe 2000. Um, but we got Congo, we got a, a Sphere eventually, just a lot of Michael Crichton projects. And this was one of them that had been around for a long time, but it sort of died, and uh, it got brought back to life. 
So the original book, Eaters of the Dead, focuses primarily on uh, the blending of two sort of what we might call ancient sets of stories. Uh, one are the, the writings of a Iraqi diplomat in the sort of early uh, 9th, uh, 10th century, Ahmed ibn Fadlan, uh, played by Antonio Banderas. So that's a bit problematic in and of itself <laughs> that this uh, Muslim Iraqi mm -hmm. man is being played by Antonio Banderas. But uh, the film, uh, it was the 90s. And, you know, he had brown skin. He, he was kind of brown. And uh, <laughs> I guess that was enough for yeah. John McTiernan. Uh, I will say that Banderas does a good job with the character he uh, does. as presented in the script. Uh, he does try to at least capture some of what we might be able to consider a kind of Middle Eastern accent. But again, it's it, it would be a much stronger performance if it was a an actual Middle Eastern sure. actor. I, I think that that is, is something to sort of deal with right off the bat. Mm -hmm. uh, but Banderas was hot when this film mm -hmm. was made. Uh, this is another movie that sort of uh, got finished and then sat on the shelf for about a year. Uh, Crichton apparently came in towards the end. McTiernan was booted from the project, and Crichton sort of uh, reshot several elements and reassembled the film himself. Um, early test screenings of this were, were quite bad by all accounts. Really? Uh, so bad that that version of the film, usually like initial cuts that get out, in some form or fashion, especially in the late 90s, like it was hard to kind of keep that stuff from, um, you know, sort of surfacing. But no one has ever seen the original McTiernan cut Ooh. of this film. So we don't really know what's McTiernan and what's Crichton. Although I think that watching the film multiple times, you can kind of tell, uh, in, at least for me, what, you know, yeah. what's Crichton and what's, what's McTiernan. Um, so McTiernan was very much focused on the the other half of the story. So the first half are the, the actual historical writings of this uh, Iraqi diplomat being sent to work with the Bulgars. Um, so he was being sent to, to basically this, this hub of uh, trade. In, in the film, they emphasize that, and, and I guess in the original writings, he sort of mentions this or hints at this, that he kind of fell in love with the wrong woman. Right. And, and got on a guy's bad side and that guy got him basically sort of kicked out of Baghdad <laughs> and he had to go to this faraway land and, and be this ambassador when that was not really his it's, expertise. It's a David and Bathsheba kind of story. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> we need to get you out of the way. Yeah. Right. And so he was a poet primarily. He was not really um, suited for travel and, and he was very, it's very much a kind of fish out of water right. story. Like he never really finds his footing until the very end of the film. Um, with what's going on. And so he's sent on this journey, but he never arrives because he is sort of co-opted into another mission with mm -hmm. a bunch of Vikings who happen to be in the area. Right. And so this is where the, the second half of the story kicks in. And supposedly Crichton in his initial notes for eaters of the dead, um, one of his, his desires to write this story was that he was, uh, he went to a lecture by a friend of his, and that friend was talking about sort of like boring classics, right? Classics of literature that are, are really kind of boring when you break them down. And one of them was Beowulf. Right, so as a, a person who's taught English for a long time, I'm very familiar with Beowulf. 
um, and uh, I, I understand where this guy is right. from. <laughs> right. Like Beowulf is this incredibly epic tale. Uh, mm-hmm. It is a tale from a very dark period in, the, in human history. We don't have a lot of things written from this time, so it's very culturally relevant and important for us to study it. But... But it's it's a difficult story to get yeah. through. And so Crichton's goal with this, by anchoring it in the story of this, this Middle Eastern man, this fish out of water, who goes with these Vikings on a journey to their homeland and experiences their culture, he attempts to ground Beowulf in a way that a lot of the, the versions that attempt to tell that story have never really done before. So right. he's trying to retell the story of Beowulf as it might have actually happened and been documented by this man who was traveling mm-hmm. with them. So it's a, a sort of pseudo-historical fantasy film. Uh, but it does give it this air of authenticity, it which does. I think yeah. is really cool. Um, because the story of Beowulf in in its, its mythologized form is about monsters and demons and... You know, all of these supernatural forces, which this version of Beowulf attempts to sort of tamp all of that down and basically, you know, sort of bring it back to, okay, well, if, if this really happened, what might it be? Right. Right. And it's, it's a really interesting approach. And, uh, you know, Crichton felt that if you framed Beowulf the right way, you could turn it into something mm-hmm. very exciting. That was his goal. So the book is, is kind of, it, it's actually a, a, the narrative itself is a, scientist a commentator reading these accounts and then commenting on those accounts right Right. so it's a Mm -hmm. it's a very sort of interesting structure for a novel and we really don't get much of that in the film right like um fudlan is is our narrator Mm -hmm. basically but you know once the film starts it becomes very sort of almost documentary approach in Mm -hmm. its in its uh movement so uh, the first 15 minutes of this is the story of Ibn Fadlan, his, his um, experiences with the Vikings. The, the main thing that his account is famous for is that he was one of the few people to see a Viking ship burial right? who was not a member of that culture. Mm-hmm. right? So he was, was an outside observer watching this take place and, and mostly horrified by it. Right, because right. It, was a, it was a violent and terrifying thing to actually watch them burn a human being alive mm-hmm. to go with their king into the afterlife. Right. Um, and so he commented on their behavior, their you know, because at this point uh, in in the history of the world, the Middle East is quite literally the hotbed of all culture. Right. Like right. he is cultured and he is intelligent. Mm-hmm. You know, he is 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 brilliant in many ways and he is is sort of thrust in with these savages (laughs) what he initially perceives is just pure violent savages apparently and and he really doesn't know what to do with it which there are a couple of really cool scenes that that illustrate that i think it's important to note too that he does have a translator with him at this time as well yeah this film contains no right subtitles uh, which I love and becomes very, very important about 25 minutes into the movie. Yes. Um, so, you know, you you may be sitting there watching this film and being like, <laughs> why don't I understand what these guys are saying? Yeah. And, and it's because they made the very specific decision. And this feels like a McTiernan decision mm-hmm. more than a Crichton decision to me. Um, they made the decision very early on that since 
but Lon doesn't know their language, nobody's going to fill in those gaps for right. either him or for us as the audience, since he is the person that we're sort of tied right. to. Right, helps us experience it as he is. Right, so initially, uh, Omar Sharif, in a very brief but wonderful performance as the, the translator Melchizedek, he... Um, you know, is, is doing all of the translating, right? And there's one Viking who sort of has some shared language mm -hmm. and they sort of communicate out what's going on. But uh, it's very cool. Now, unfortunately, this was the, this film and its stunning failure <laughs> was the reason why Omar Sharif chose to stop acting. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> it is. Uh, he took about a three and a half, four year break. He did work again, but he very famously said that working on a film that was this colossal of a failure just sort of Aww. broke him, right? He didn't he didn't feel like it was worth it <laughs> to go out and do all this stuff. That's a bummer. Um so so let's let's get into the failure a bit and then we'll we'll kind of break down the, the overall story. So uh our our general approach, uh Heather since this is your your first time here is that we take mm -hmm. a look at the the two sort of gathering places for reviews uh rotten tomatoes and metacritic and we kind of look at their their overall scores um now this film has the unfortunate distinction of being critically reviled mm -hmm. and a huge box office disaster <laughs> for disney the double whammy the double whammy right a lot of the films that we watch are box office disasters but you know critically well sure. supported like you know we've talked about like dark city yeah you know, good critical response for the most part but still you know did not do well at the box office mm -hmm. this unfortunately is the double whammy so in this particular case uh the rotten tomato score for 13th warrior is 33 percent so Oof. yeah oofta um just doesn't feel good yeah. um there were people who thought it was okay right this is not a, a zero or less than 10 percent there were people who did enjoy this film and there are elements of this film that if you just, you like action movies, mm -hmm. uh, especially of the McTiernan variety, um, you know, there are things to like here, but sure. a lot of people found primarily, and we'll look at some of the reviews here in a sec, primarily that the plot was pretty incomprehensible, right? right. It's, it's chopped up. There's a lot of really, really big, very violent action scenes mm -hmm. and not a ton to tie them together. Right. right, just sort of fumbles its way. Re Roger Ebert said specifically, it kind of fumbled its way from from action set piece to action set piece without much drive. Not much in exposition in between. Yeah. Right, and so uh, a lot of that I think probably has to do with the the nature of the Beowulf story. Right, right. Um, you know, in Beowulf, you know, we do get lots of sequences of them in the hall, you know, sort of having conversations, but most of it are these sort of big touchstone moments and mm -hmm. if you've got to pick moments from Beowulf to adapt those are the ones those are the exciting ones those are the ones you're probably going to pull out yeah. so so 33% on Rotten Tomatoes a slightly better meta score with about 42% but the vast majority of the reviews on Metacritic uh, are mixed uh, with uh, a good number being negative as well so a few negative reviews uh, that I pulled and, and again these mostly sort of outline the uh, typical response to this movie a lot of people a lot of the the you know sort of slugline reviews were 
it's awful. <laughs> and they didn't go into a I lot didn't more give detail. detail. <laughs> they just said it's real bad. Aww. But uh, these kind of hit the, the high notes. So uh, first one, uh, Todd McCarthy from Variety. Michael Crichton's story is underdeveloped and narrow in range, resulting in a tale more curious for its odd confluence of elements than for their edifying deployment. Mm. Which is a very fancy way of saying that there's just not much going on right. in the plot of this film. Um, there are pieces that are all very interesting and very satisfying, mm -hmm. but none of them roll together in a way that creates anything that sort of satisfies in any significant way. Right. Uh, this one I thought was a particularly br big burn, especially for mm. the time, because uh, this is around 99, 2000, where television was still kind of bad. Right. Um, premium TV was limited to stuff that HBO was doing for the most part. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, 13th Warrior seems like a made-for-TV warrior movie without enough money to get really epic. Wow. Uh, and that's from Destin Thompson from the Washington Post. Now, the irony here is that this film was notoriously over budget. Really? Supposedly, that is why McTiernan was dropped okay. from this movie, is that it had constant budget overruns, uh, f finally sort of culminating in Crichton taking the film over, as we said. So this film's budget is, is somewhere north of $160 million. Okay. Is what they spent on this. And in, in 1999, that's a lot. That is a lot of money. Um, the Matrix was made for $80 million in Ooh. 1999. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, so, so this was a huge loss, and it made back $60 million at the box office. Ouch. So this guy's saying that it needed more budget. Mm -hmm. I don't think budget was the problem. No. <laughs> I, I think deployment of budget might have been the problem. But... Um, so this was a huge loss, right? $100 million plus just in box office alone. So the fact that people were still saying that it felt like a kind of made-for-TV movie mm -hmm. is, 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 pretty, is pretty rough, right? Yeah. It's a hard thing to take. But So that's where, kind of where we're at. Uh, and then, of course, Roger Ebert, uh, favorite critic of uh -huh. our, our podcast, he said, with a budget said to be more than $100 million, it displays a lot of cash but little thought on screen. Sure. And again, uh, I think we're getting back to that core element that it, it looks good. I mean, McTiernan is extremely good at location shooting. He's extremely good at framing. Uh, he's really good at action. But mm -hmm. a lot of people are saying there's just really nothing. There's no gas in the engine, right? The engine is running, but it's, it's not revving at its full RPMs, right? It's just kind of idling there. And there's not really anything going on. I think that's a, a bit dismissive of some cool ideas in this movie. Yes. But, uh, you know, I sort of see where they're coming from. Uh, and then finally, uh, Peter Brunette from Film.com, with the possible exception of the action sequences and the very occasionally imaginative set design, it's awful. <laughs> so just straight, it's real bad. It's bad. Yeah. So, uh, and again, this was kind of the tenor of most of the reviews. Mm -hmm. There weren't a lot of people deep thinking about stuff that 13th Warrior was doing right. The common consensus was it's a bad movie, and it's bad on a variety of levels. Don't go see it. <laughs> and people didn't. Yeah. So the common problems that we like to sort of point out before we move into our, our sort of deeper discussion, uh, good production design, but a weak plot that is mostly overshadowed by big, bombastic action sequences. 
a very messy development that unfortunately shows up on screen. Right. You get a bit of a messy film because of the messy development. Um, and then finally, the expense without really seeing where that money has gone. Mm-hmm. A lot of reviewers noted that. I don't necessarily like to hold a film's budget against it. Sure. I, I don't think that a high budget necessarily means you should have higher expectations for performance. Right. If anything, the recent you know sort of explosion of the blockbuster Michael Bay, Michael Bay era of of Transformers style filmmaking shows you that just because you pump three hundred million dollars into a movie doesn't mean you're going to get gonna something awesome. good. Yeah. And and so I, I don't again, but in this case, it, it does seem sort of crazy that a movie of this scale is is hitting that much money. Maybe they spent most of the money making those Viking ships. I think the production <laughs> design and, and the set design definitely is where they spent yeah. the money. Because uh, they do straight up build a, you know, sort of ninth century Viking village. Uh, right. Complete with, with Mead Hall and the whole nine yards. Yeah. So it's entirely possible. But uh, I don't know. And, and then it's, its core thing is just, it's just kind of unfocused. Right. right. It just doesn't really go anywhere. Trying to mesh those two narratives, but not successfully. Right. Uh, which people, you know, did say about the initial book, that it didn't really go anywhere, right? So seemingly Crichton's thesis that he could make Beowulf interesting <laughs> didn't necessarily work. <laughs> that was the first work. failure. Right. Um, and that is ultimately where we find ourselves. Uh, so the, the basic plot of this film is that, uh, as we said, Antonio Banderas plays a, a Middle Eastern poet who is sort of pulled into, conscripted into this Viking adventure, right? And and he is taken north with them, and he observes their ways, and ultimately is drawn into the story that we now understand to be Beowulf, right? Of King Hrothgar, his uh, mead hall being demolished by some sort of demonic or mm-hmm. monstrous force. You know, in the original version, it's Grendel, this, this horrific demon, this version takes a much more sort of straightforward approach to what's going on. But so if that's a, a movie that sounds interesting to you, uh, I would encourage you to pause the podcast, check go it check out. it out. Um, I believe it's streaming on Amazon or you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and it's well worth your time. Like I, I will go ahead and say that. Um, but uh, then you can come back and, and we're going to kind of break it down. So the film begins with what I presume uh, are reshoots. Oh. Uh, I think all of these are reshoots. It, it opens with uh, a framing device. We uh, sort of push in in this uh, horrible sea. Uh, we, we push in on the Viking ship and specifically Banderas. Um, you know, sort of cold and miserable and a little bit of voiceover saying, you know, my life hasn't always been like this. Right. Um, but it sets the tone of the film, both visually and in his, you know, sort of, who he is as a character right. basically that he is miserable he's and, very miserable and he has been <laughs> taken against his will to a place that he has no desire to be um but we get this flashback to uh, you know his life before and and this right. doesn't these shots don't feel mctiernany to me mm-hmm. if i can put it that way they sort of lack his visual panache and they feel like they are are made on sets with very very cheap, um, not cheap clothing, but you know, kind of cheap. Yeah, it, it looks like something yeah. that you would throw together 
if you needed it. Um, I have a feeling that McTiernan, the opening on the ship, yeah. is McTiernan. Okay. And then probably going back to uh, just him sort of moving away from the city and telling us, you know, what has happened to him with Melchizedek. So I, I think a little bit of this is just Crichton trying to establish Fadlan's life. I do like that we travel by map. We do get some travel by map, uh, and we can enjoy that. We we've got to love a little bit of travel by <laughs> map, right? It's it's the Spielberg yeah. travel by map glory. Um, but we kind of establish where we're at in the world and, and sort of what Fadlan is doing, which is you know again traveling north to go and uh, you know sort of be an ambassador with the boulders. But that all gets interrupted. Um, they've got uh, you know they're being attacked by some various people as the, the credits are circling up and basically they're warded off by these uh, uh, sort of stray Vikings yeah. moving their way through the, the world. But it's it's a great sequence. This, you know, all of this stuff feels like McTiernan, you know, these huge wide shots with all of this background action and horses. I mean, this is McTiernan in a nutshell. Uh, it's the kind of stuff he loves to do. Uh, and I don't necessarily want to turn this into, oh, well, let's figure out what's Crichton and what's McTiernan. I, I think Crichton's doing a good job of trying to blend them. And, and you know, I think it's safe to say that he had final edit of the film regardless. Sure. Uh, it is interesting to note that the producer credits go Crichton slash McTiernan instead oh. of McTiernan slash Crichton. I think that's a little bit of a dig. Yeah. Um, McTiernan is the, still the sole credited director, though. But okay. a lot of that has to do with who was actually doing the on-site location shooting and how much of that footage is used in the film. So obviously okay. McTiernan is still, you know, the, the main guy doing the, the, the shooting. But in any case, um, so we very quickly are introduced to the Vikings and uh, Fadlan is, is invited to meet with them. And uh, we, you know, he's, again, this is basically a fish out of fish water Fish out of water, story. yeah. And we're, we're kind of brought there almost mm -hmm. immediately. Um, interesting thing to note, uh, the screenplay has two credits. The first is William Wisher, um, who is probably most famous for his work with James Cameron on the Terminator films. Oh, okay. Um, he has written some other things, but that is by far his, I, I guess, most successful credit. Uh, mm -hmm. Warren Lewis, the other credited director, or credited writer, excuse me, uh, had a much shorter career, um, <laughs> but uh, is probably most famous for writing 1989's Black Rain, mm -hmm. uh, which is a pretty decent Michael Douglas film from that era. Um, I remember enjoying it fondly back at the time, but it's, uh, you know, he probably was, was brought in as, as rewrites with Crichton, you know, sort okay. of came to bear. That's, that's my guess anyway, but I, I imagine Wisher was responsible for most of the basic structure of the story. Um, but... So this, this first scene with the Vikings, Melchizedek makes contact with one of the Vikings uh, who is capable of, of uh, sort of understanding them and, and communicating back and forth. But again, I, I love right off the bat that, that uh, Banderas' character is kind of sidelined here. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't understand any of the He's language. He's very uncomfortable. He is, is absolutely out of his depth. Um, and he's not familiar with that. And, and I think Banderas here, you know, Banderas was hot in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is a couple years right after The Mask of Zorro, which was probably Ooh, his, yeah. his breakout role, even though he'd had several large films prior to that. Um, you know, but, but Zorro was certainly where, you know, 
his film, his film career exploded. Uh, you know, I had seen a little bit of his work. Uh, he worked a lot with Pedro Almodovar. Okay. Uh, early in his career, and and that's kind of where he he earned his chops. And Almodovar is, is a fantastic, fantastic mm-hmm. director. But of uh, you know, Almodovar's expertise is in these very you know sort of powerful family dramas. And you know, it wasn't until he came uh, and started working a lot in the United States. His first, the first time I ever saw him was in Philadelphia. Oh. Um, he was in that film. Uh, with Tom Hanks, and was very, very good. Then, of course, he had a very uh, a very awesome but somewhat short turn in uh, Interview with a Vampire mm-hmm. as one of the uh, vampire, uh, members of the Vampire oh. Coven right. that uh, Louis meets in that film. And then, of course, he got Assassins, uh, which, again, if we're going to tie this back to The Matrix, was written by the Wachowskis, <laughs> um, which was a really good action film with Stallone uh, that was very good and then sort of took off. Uh, from there with Mask of Zorro. And so, you know, he's hot here. Everybody's very interested in, um, you know, sort of seeing what he does next. And this is a pretty strange project to take. Um, And the fact that he is the star, but he is very much overshadowed. He is the follower in this movie. And it's such a weird thing, you know. He wouldn't have to have taken a role with this, this kind of, layer to it of him being this guy who doesn't know what's going on and i think he does a really good job with it he does um so one of the things from fadlan's account that um you know sort of the the reason it was unique was the the ship burning we actually get the recreation of that scene Mm -hmm. in the film where you know he watches the the now dead king uh you know get his his burning ship um, but more importantly, we're introduced to the company of Vikings uh, and, and ostensibly the new leader, if not new king, right. uh, who in the film is, is Bullwolf. 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 But uh, we now, uh, you know, we know is is Beowulf, mm-hmm. right? The the legendary warrior. So the next day begins, and to further illustrate just how savage <laughs> and disgusting the Vikings are. Uh, we get to see their morning after routine. So right. after their great revels, uh, wherein Beowulf murders a guy because he's attempting to assassinate him, at, you know, ostensibly, I guess, to take his, his power, uh, Beowulf just straight murders the guy in the middle of the party. Just Nobody seems to notice. Just goes on with, yeah, with the party. Continue along, right? Yeah. Um, but the next morning, everybody's waking up and they're all sort of cleaning themselves in a shared bowl. And, you know, again, uh, you know, Fadlan is this this Middle Eastern civilized. Man. He's man. civilized, right? Like, yeah. what are you doing? This is disgusting. And he refuses to participate. They're all blowing their nose in it and everything. Yeah, and then so drinking gross. out of it and, and just sharing it. It's 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 gross. It's truly disgusting. Um, you know, I guess we could take a moment and and talk about the Viking representation here. So this is is probably you know, Viking culture and, and fascination with the Vikings as a people, it's been around for a very long time, right. obviously. But I think this film has a lot to do with the revitalization of interest in sort of seeing the Vikings as they were. Sure. Um, now, this film has a lot of inaccuracies in it in concerning Vikings. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's not 
perfect in, in a representation of what Viking culture was really right. like. Um, and granted, it's it's not pure Viking. It's supposed to just be you know this these men of the north, the northern right? men, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of the armor is wrong. Mm-hmm. For example, like Beowulf has this very advanced suit of plate armor that right. we would not have seen until much, much later. Uh, you know, he's supposed to be unique, so I think maybe that's why they justify it. But you know, mm-hmm. that but we're not gonna nitpick that kind of crap. It doesn't really matter. But so um this film I think presents Viking culture as these sort of violent warriors, but mm-hmm. yet with this impossible heart right this sense of brotherhood this sense this community of community and community. unity mm-hmm. and and i think that it, it does so in a way that's very enticing right it, yeah some, i think we get something very similar a couple of years after this with 300 yeah and the way that it glorified spartan culture mm-hmm. and, and frankly got a lot of it wrong too that's right. a really good comparison. And so I think that, that really we're seeing sort of these this two-tiered approach that now have become very typical, right? It's not... I mean, there's a, a guy I see driving to work every day that has a huge Spartan helmet on the back of his <laughs> truck, right? Really? Like, it's become this this iconic wow. thing. It's been associated with all this other stuff, and I think Vikings have very much had a, a similar sort of revitalization. Yeah. Um, one thing that we'll get to towards the end, um, this film... And, and Crichton adapted a bit of Fadlan's version of this, but this film is the source for the Viking like warrior prayer mm-hmm. that uh, was used in Thor Ragnarok, which I think it's ironic there. Like it's yeah. probably them sort of acknowledging that it's a little bit dumb. It's a little tee hee hee. But in the most recent God of War game, uh, Atreus says the same prayer. Uh-huh. Um, and again, it's it's loosely based on what Fudlon says that he heard, you yeah. know, and kind of half understood at, at his experience. But it's it's obviously been ramped up for right. the movie, so it's just kind of ironic. But this is the source text for that thing, which has now become sort of this: oh, this is an actual like ancient Viking prayer. When it's right. like, it's kind of not. You're right. It's like. <laughs> It's like John McTiernan and William Wisher came up with this idea and they sort of loosely adapted something that Crichton was already loosely adapting. So, um, but yeah, I think this movie's actually got a lot more to do. One, uh, and I I saw this in an article, I was reading about it, but basically nobody saw this movie. So I think... So they can borrow from it. I think people are totally cool with just stealing from it wholesale because nobody's going to be like, hey, that's from 13th Warrior because literally no one knows. Wow. Um... But so, in essence, uh, you know, after we see the ship burning and, and the next morning, we're done with Fadlan's story, and mm-hmm. now it is Beowulf. Right. Uh, because a, a young boy shows up, Wolfgar, I believe is his name. Right. Young boy shows up and uh, begs Beowulf's help. Because mm-hmm. uh, his, his father, or not father, but uncle or something. I think Hrothgar's his uncle. Yeah, but so his, Hrothgar is, is, is in trouble, and he believes that Beowulf can help. So very much in, in tracking with how Beowulf heard about the situation and showed up right. uh, at Hrothgar's uh, hall. But the the you know the the bullywick is that the they, they bring out a, a Volga, I believe, mm-hmm. a witch basically. With and the bones. She's got the bones. She you know does the bones. She's let up. He's blind, and she does the bones. And she says that there have to be thirteen warriors to go on this adventure. Right. 
and the Vikings only number 12. Mm -hmm. And so the 13th warrior has to be a non-Viking. Um, and so Ibn Fadlan is Guess who? is is conscripted mm -hmm. to join them because they're they're supposedly they, they will not find success unless right. thirteen warriors go, which frankly this is the Hobbit like yeah like this is straight up just the Hobbit <laughs> like this is how it works like you're you, right you have to have the thirteenth member of the company so it's kind of a mythological dodge but mm -hmm. um, you know it's it's sort of Tolkien mythologizing based on old histories of northern stories and this mm -hmm. kind of feeding back into that little bit of a, a northern mythological echo chamber right that's cool so it's there's you know some cool stuff going on there um but uh, i did want to call out here because this movie is populated by a a whole bunch of uh very famous swedish and norwegian yeah. and uh, a lot of really really great Actors, they weren't really interested in casting an actual person from the Middle East to mm -hmm. play Ibn Fadlan, but they did seem interested in having a lot of, uh, you know, sort of Norwegian and Eastern European mm -hmm. actors for the rest of the cast. Not always. Uh, we've got some Scots. Uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, Tony Curran, yeah, uh, who's Scottish. He's in there. So I mean, it's it's a, a good mix. But one uh, face that that you know, sort of. Fans of 80s action films may recognize uh, right as they are getting ready to leave is Sven Ole Thorsen. Uh, Sven? Sven Ole Thorsen uh, is, is best known as a, uh, he was an initial like stunt double, body double, I believe, for Schwarzenegger. Oh, wow. And, and he and Schwarzenegger are, were, are, I presume are, I don't I think he's still around. Uh, they were really, really good friends. Huh. And so he always cast Sven Olthorsen in his films. So he's uh, all over the place. He's in The Running Man. Uh, he plays a security guard in that one that gets a really great scene. Uh, he's, he's done a lot, but he's, he's basically a stunt performer. But they've got him in here as uh, one of the, the Viking company at this camp, but yeah. not a member of Beowulf's group. Uh, so it's always good to see Sven Olthorsen. He's he's around all the time, but uh, he's pretty awesome. So basically, uh, they take off, and uh, Melchizedek is left behind, and now Ibn Fadlan is going on an adventure with these 12 guys. He doesn't speak their language. Mm -hmm. He knows nothing about them. They're constantly mocking Aww, him and making fun they of make him. make fun of him. His horse um, is a dog. Right. Like, they ride <laughs> these, like, massive, uh, you know, war horses, basically. And he's got yeah. this little Arabian that's, you know, fast, but they, they call it a dog all the time. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't understand what they're saying. So he, he doesn't necessarily know that he's being insulted. Yeah. But this leads us to possibly the greatest scene in this film we get some really good we don't really get any more travel by map but we do get a lot of scenes of them moving across uh the varied landscapes of, of oh, europe travel montage right but each night as they sit around the fire and talk and eat and you know make fun of each other ibn mm -hmm. fadlan sits and listens mm -hmm. right it's concentrating very hard right so we we get some really good scenes here at this point you know most of this movie, what we've seen of Banderas, he's he's on his back foot, right? He, as a character, he he doesn't really know where he is. He doesn't know what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Here we see him. This is really the first time in the movie that we see him with a purpose, right? 
Right, he's got a drive, and his drive is to learn their language, mm-hmm. right? He's a poet, he's extremely intelligent, as we mentioned before, and his goal is to start to understand right. these guys. And so this, I think, is one of, this scene is perhaps one of the greatest filmed scenes of all time. Just taken out, put by itself, apropos of nothing, mm-hmm. you could take this scene out, play it for someone, and they will absolutely and completely understand what's going on right. with zero context. Because we get all kinds of these super close-up shots on Banderas's eyes as he's sort of moving around the group. We see their mouths moving. And then, in just brilliant fashion, McTiernan begins piecing in English, basically. English words he's, here and there. He's lear- you know, they're He's learning their language, but since we are the people who are processing it, right? basically we start hearing their language convert to English since mm-hmm. Ibn Fadlan is, is our filter for it. So basically what we get in shortened format is a human being listening and learning a language through immersion. Right. Right. It's, it's immersion language development and we don't really get any context for how long this is, although we can assume mm-hmm. it's weeks, maybe months that they're taking to travel, um, you know, because they would have been in sort of the, the southern, you know, maybe northern Turkey, I think is what some mm-hmm. of the maps put them on. I think there's some moon shots, too, that help determine yeah, some Yeah, it's, it's been some time, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and basically he begins to piece it together. And then when he delivers his first line, somebody insults him again, says something <laughs> terrible about his mother. He picks it up. Right. And then he responds. But because it's supposed to be Banderas responding in their language to them, it's slow and cautious uh-huh. and careful because he doesn't know the language just yet, or at least not very well. Right. But he begins being able to converse with them. And and it's just this great moment. Like he says his first <laughs> line. He says his first line, you know, is my mother because uh-huh. they just insulted his mom. And then he basically delivers a burn is uh-huh. his first communication with these they guys. They are shocked. And, the, you know, there's like all this great music and raucous laughter. And it all just drowns out immediately. And then he makes a joke about not, you know them not even knowing who their dads are, yeah. and and it's it's this it's a beautiful beautiful scene, uh, it's sequence really, yeah. And and Banderas kills it. The the rest of and and from this moment on, the rest of the film is in English. It's All English. the characters speak mm-hmm. in English because he has learned their language, and now that he knows what they're saying, we can we know. do too. Mm-hmm. And. Gosh, it just, it's killer. Uh, aside from the fact that, you know, it's all shot at night. Mm-hmm. Night for real, right? Like, they're actually outside yeah. in these scenes with real fires. Uh, you know, this is not Roger Deakins, who's got his, like, specially programmed LED light bars to simulate fire. There's just straight up fire in the background. Right. And that's one of the things I love about McTiernan is that he shoots so naturally. Uh, it's one of the things that gives his films weight. So, John McTiernan is is most famous, perhaps, for uh, Die Hard. Okay. Right. So McTiernan is famous for Die Hard and Die Hard with a Vengeance, mm-hmm. uh, the third film, which is generally not regarded as highly, but is actually still very good. Uh, he's also responsible for Predator. 
yeah. which um, you know now is a, a a classic film in the action genre. So McTiernan is is sort of action film royalty in a lot yeah. of ways. And one of the things that I love about McTiernan is that he shoots very very open, very natural, um, you know, natural lighting whenever mm-hmm. he can do it. Uh, modified, of course, but he's he's not a guy to set up in a studio and and artificially light everything right. and get those perfect shots. He kind of likes things dirty. Mm-hmm. And that super benefits this film. It, it really does. Because it's so dirty. It's dirty. It's very dirty. <laughs> like, everything is gross <laughs> and kind of nasty. Um, I, I kind of love it. You know, people mm-hmm. don't have perfect teeth. Like, Banderas is by far the most put together yes. person in here, but we get the impression that he is that way because of the very refined culture that he comes right. from. Whereas the, the other Vikings are these just sort of dirty... Um, uh, you know, unkempt, unkempt, you know, dudes. Yeah. But the language transition scene, in in my opinion, the language transition scene is the reason to watch this movie. Definitely. Um, it's so so brilliantly done, and so many films, you know, you can think about movies where you have a character who you know doesn't know a language and then learns the language, right? Yeah. Uh, even something like. You know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm. You know where they drop the the babblefish in his ear. Right and now, all of a sudden, I understand everybody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This film actually sort of earns those. It takes chops. the time with it, mm-hmm. and it ends up showing us. You know, it serves a, a narrative function, obviously, because we need to be able to understand these characters moving forward. But it also serves this character function, mm-hmm. where Banderas now we understand the depth of his intelligence and the capability that he holds. And really the next couple of scenes, that's what they all do is they, Mm -hmm. they demonstrate to the Vikings that this isn't just some, you know, sort of loser that they've picked up on this journey. Like he actually has skill. So we get a, a, a really good, Obviously not Antonio Banderas jumping a horse <laughs> <laughs> through a bunch of uh, you know farm yeah. equipment basically, and all the Vikings kind of turning and looking and sh- you know being like, oh well, he's he's not you know an idiot and right. terrible, and like his little horse is really fast and can jump, so you know he's not so terrible. But um, you know it's it's pretty cool because we we do need to sort of have him establish himself amongst the group and that's really what happens yeah. here. He earns his place. He earns his place, right? So what it took the Hobbit three hours to do, <laughs> <laughs> basically he does it in a couple of scenes, yes. right? Um, and then we're back. We we're we're back with the the credits opening, right? Yeah. Of the the ship on the sea, right? The tiny Viking longboat uh, battling the ocean. And of course, Ibn Fadlan is having none of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a land dweller. He does not like ocean. And uh, nothing about this journey is doing anything right. to convince him otherwise. But we do get those awesome sort of longbow shots of the, the captain peering over the bow and, and stuff. It's it's pretty cool. Um, and this, you know, we talked a bit about budget. This is probably where most of the budget right. went, was reproducing these things, mm-hmm. right? This is not building these kinds of practical things because these are real ships that are mm-hmm. actually floating on the water and actually doing things and and they just burn a couple of them straight up they do mm-hmm. <laughs> you know so i mean that's kind of where i think a lot of the budget for this movie went but it's hard to say uh so we probably do need to talk just a little bit about uh beowulf right because as we approach hrothgar's 
Mead Hall. This is where Beowulf begins to to sort of dominate the film. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, Fadlan is still at the center of it. He's our cipher for what's right. going on. But Beowulf now becomes, you know, the sort of essential character of the story. And so he is portrayed by Vladimir Kulik, um, who I don't want to say has built a career off of this film, but he kind of did. Yeah. Uh, so he has played. He's played in a lot of stuff, but he was. Probably most famous as Eric in the Vikings TV show, uh, in uh, starting in 2013. So uh, certainly played back on that. But I'm most familiar with him because he is the voice of Ulfric Stormcloak mm-hmm. in Skyrim, which ah. is one of the most successful video games of all time, and yeah. he plays the basically the Beowulf character of that game. So um, so Kulik is, is, is Beowulf here. He, he reminds me a little bit of uh, the uh, bad guy in the painting from Ghostbusters 2. Um, <laughs> yes. He's got a bit of that vibe. Uh, yeah. He's Vigo. Right? <laughs> um, he's got a bit of that vibe, but he is just that sort of like, you know, st- six and a half foot tall he's huge blonde norse guy um but he he very much sort of embodies the this sort of classic idea now i I believe kulik is czechoslovakian yes um yeah he's he's czechoslovakian but but he he very much sort of has that visual he's what you would think of um as a a sort of viking leader right right uh he's very commanding very powerful so they're they're quickly brought to Hrothgar, and um, you know sort of brought up to speed. We get these long tracking shots that take us mm-hmm. into the village, and you know everything's kind of burned out. Um, it looks like they clear cut like an entire hill to put yeah. this thing on. So again, no idea where the budget is, but a lot of the stuff in these sequences for me uh, they're really reminiscent of uh, John Borman's Excalibur. They feel mm-hmm. a lot like Excalibur. Um, and I, I kind of have to think that's intentional. Probably. Um, because Excalibur is, is you know, a, a titan of this sort of like epic fantasy cinema, mm-hmm. right? And it too has a lot of the same qualities. It's, it's dirty. It's honest. It, it takes the mythology and sort of, you know, twists it and, and makes us look at it in a way that, you know, we can't just say, oh, that's you know those are the gods or whatever mm-hmm. like it's it's less than this but it's certainly in that same vein but there's just some really you know the the shots of just the mist and smoke in the background like all of it just feels a lot like Excalibur yeah. to me um and maybe like McTiernan reaching for some of that iconography so the the mead hall I think is is super impressive mm-hmm. um you know we've both watched pretty much every version of Beowulf that's out there. <laughs> yes. Uh, even the shitty Christopher Lambert one from like, I don't know, 2001 or something. It's, yeah, I think it's a one. It's real bad. And and we've still watched it because we're constantly looking for good movies to to try and get, with students. get students yeah. excited. It's 1999. It came out the same 99. year as this. Um, but... You know, we're trying you know, to try and get somebody excited about this very old and, mm-hmm. and in many ways very staid story, right? It's trying to like, uh, I think a similar thing happened with John Carter 
Yes. Right? Like, John Carter is one of those stories. It's John Carter of Mars, goddammit. They changed it to John Carter. I don't know why. But John Carter of Mars is, is a story that has been pillaged for 75 years by people doing science fiction. From right. Flash Gordon to who knows what else. Uh, you know, George Lucas and Star Wars. I mean, just huge ripoffs of John Carter scenes. And so Disney makes a John Carter movie, a frankly really good John mm-hmm. Carter movie, like an excellent film, but all you're going to get is people being like, I've already seen that. Right. I know what that is, right? I've seen all this stuff. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, this movie, it, it's kind of in the same place. Yeah. Like, we know this story. We know the basics mm-hmm. of how this is going to work. And Eaters of the Dead did a lot to try and change that up. So as we approach Hrothgar's, you know, mead hall. I feel like this hall, though, is one of the best portrayals of the original text, though. Oh, for sure. I feel sure. like the, the visuals of it really um, echo the text. Yeah, the, the long tables, the open spaces, the, the benches lining the side the walls, you know, which... The which rafters. Is, the rafters being yeah. open. You know, this... There are not a ton of specific call-outs to the layout of Hrothgar's mm-hmm. Mead Hall in the, the original text, but there are some things that are mentioned, and, and they definitely right. try to get those. And get those um, here. Tremendous amount of, of carving work as well, just yeah. intricately carved, intricately designed, um, because this was supposed to be the Mead Hall of you know the greatest king, mm-hmm. one of the greatest kings that the world had ever seen. Right? right. It wasn't the the sort of this is this is no chump, right? This is supposed to literally be one of the greatest places mm-hmm. the, on the planet, and and I think the production design, which is firing on all cylinders here, right. like, there is nothing about the production design of this film that fails. Um, it may not be perfect. Again, the armor and stuff like that is mm-hmm. is kind of off, but they are are trying to capture a time and place that we really don't have a ton of reference right. for. And, and I think that that's a pretty big challenge. But I feel like, you know, in, in the, the Zemeckis Beowulf, the, the all-CG Beowulf with uh, Anthony Hopkins mm-hmm. and Ray Winstone, the, the mead hall from this film is basically the same mead hall in that film. Yeah. Uh, they add the, the exterior, you know, there's like the inner sanctum where the king and his people mm-hmm. are, and then there's like the exterior sanctum or the exterior place. So they add kind of that two-room structure, which right. you know some of them apparently did have. This one doesn't really do that, but you know it is it's a glorious set. They use mm-hmm. it well. It comes back multiple times throughout the film, and it, it does feel grand, even it though does. this world is sort of dirty and small and it's thatched roof huts, you know, uh, etc. But you know the one of the big things against this is that we just keep getting hit with action stuff, right. right? Just things keep happening. And, you know, there's a lot of old rules about how many coincidences you're going to be willing to <laughs> accept yeah. in a, in any story, really. But this film is one where events just sort of occur mm-hmm. and there's not a lot you can do with it. And, you know, it, it is unfortunate that, that they don't get the sort of connective tissue mm-hmm. because really we go from Hrothgar immediately to our first encounter with the eaters of the dead right uh, a child stumbles out of the forest uh, fudlan is the first one to see him and you know the vikings ride out and um you know discover a, a bloodied and terrified child so they mm-hmm. track him back 
Uh, I really do like they sort of establish the Vikings as great trackers as well. Yes. Um, you know, right off the bat, you know, from smell and sound and, and all these different things. So they track the child back. They find a, you know, presumably his home. They go inside. Uh, it's very tense. You know, he sort of, yeah. uh, I mean, Tiernan sort of shoots it like a special forces team. Yeah. You know, it feels a bit predator-y. You know, they're sort of doing hand signals with each other. Which, again, I have no, I, I, I know nothing about Viking yeah. like, battle <laughs> technique, but I, I kind of don't imagine that they're, like, you know, really running, organized. running in half yeah. diamond formation and, like, doing hand signals to tell each other when to move. Maybe. Right. I don't know. But yeah. it's, it really feels like a special forces assault. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, Schwarzenegger's team moving on the village in, in Predator. Yes. Right? It has that same feel and that same rhythm to it. But so they go into the house and and they find uh, decapitated and mm. and eaten bodies. It's gross. It is, and it's it's very gross. This this film does not pull any punches with no. its violence, right? Which McTiernan has always done violence. I mean, this is uh, you know Predator has tremendous amounts of violence in it, both from the Predator and from you know the, the special forces teams. Mm-hmm. But this film is especially. Gross. Uh, there's a lot of uh, the the hallmark of these beings that are coming for them. The the wind doll, as they're eventually called, uh, is that they decapitate their mm-hmm. their victims. Right, they take the heads, and so that's happened here. Uh, we get a lot of practical effects. Um, you know, hanging bodies again, kind of reminiscent mm-hmm. of Predator, hanging upside down. Um, but Fadlan has, has never seen anything like this before. Uh, he's, he's terrified by it. But this is the, the core change from the original Beowulf story that right. Crichton chose to make, is that rather than it being Grendel, right, a, a monstrous beast, potentially born of the, the, the affair of Hrothgar with this demon, mm-hmm. you know, Grendel's mother... Um, instead of being that, it is uh, a group of Neolithic humans, right? Basically, cavemen. Cavemen. If we're gonna yeah. be, if we're gonna be reductive, who have aligned themselves with or or believe they are like bears, right? Uh, you know, maybe Wendigo, if you want to mm-hmm. call them that. Uh, you know, but basically humans that have have turned into a kind of creature Mm -hmm. and thus behave like animals um so we kind of uh, in this sequence we see a shadowy figure watching them they later say that uh, the head wendell right grendel Mm -hmm. if you will um wears these horns of power these battle horns and so we can presume it's him but there's also mention of uh, a mother right the mother Mm -hmm. of the wendell so we can see the pieces of the Beowulf mythology playing out here, right? That it's not a monster. The monster are is people, mm-hmm. but it's people who have been, um, you know, sort of left behind and, and have these ancient ways that right. conflict with the ways of the Northmen now. And that's pretty much the mm-hmm. setup, right? They, yeah. they move in, in, in packs. They are, uh, they are not stupid. They're smart. Um, they know how to evade. They know how to, um, you know, turn attention, mm-hmm. right? They they are a truly dangerous force. Come right? under the cover of darkness and fog. And, right. Yeah. 
And so, um, you know, it's very cool. We get a lot of, uh, you know, McTiernan's very, is always very interested. One of the things I like about his stuff is he's very interested in us knowing the geography of the space. Sure. Right. So, uh, like in Die Hard, one of the reasons why Die Hard works as a film is that all of the spaces that um, John McClane moves through in Die Hard, we always know where he is right. in relationship to the people that he's he's against. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, the air ducts, the, the construction floor where he's relatively safe, the the main area, right? Like. McTiernan is one of those really, really good action directors who kind of understands that you need to know the world that your characters right. are in mm-hmm. for, for it to work, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so he, he actually kind of lays out the, the spaces, right? They, they noted when they came in that Hrothgar's hall is, is no, notoriously devoid of defenses, right? right. Like there's, there's, no, there's nothing to protect it. And so this speaks... It, this speaks to, you know, Hrothgar's vanity, uh-huh. right? Like, you know, that's that's kind of the way that the, this particular film deals with it is that he never assumed that anyone would come for him, right? right? So he didn't bother setting up those kind of defenses. Um, but, of course, we know that they are coming. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Beowulf's men know as well, right? So they don't drink that night. They, right. they decide to sleep in the hall because they suspect. With one eye open. That's right. <laughs> uh, this is also, we, yeah. we get our first scene in the hall that night of Wiglaf, mm-hmm. who is uh, Hrothgar's son, who, you know, believes that he, you know, has the solution. You know, basically he's just a foil to, yeah. to give us somebody to hate, I suppose. Um, but we really get to see sort of Beowulf dealing with the more political side of the situation as well right like beowulf is is more than a warrior he i, I think mctiernan and, and probably Crichton, because some of these do feel a little bit like like reshot scenes too um i think Crichton is very interested interested in us understanding that beowulf is a truly great leader mm-hmm. um he may not be a great person <laughs> but he is a great leader yes. he is worthy of respect um and and, and fear in mm-hmm. a lot of ways and so we get, you know, these smaller scenes, but this is where I think we can really tell that the movie, again, doesn't have a lot going on between the action sequences right. because most of the scenes are purpose built to accomplish a single goal. There's really only one thing happening in mm-hmm. most of the scenes that we see. And that's not a bad thing. A lot of directors like to use a scene to convey a certain idea and then move on. Right. But this film, they're pretty much all that way. Right. <laughs> and we don't really get much more than the bare minimum of what we need to know to move forward. And I think that's what most of the the people who watch this movie are feeling. It's like there are other questions that we could be answering. Oh, definitely. That we are not answering right yeah. now. Like nobody's talking about, I mean, we get a little bit, like there's the dude with the eye patch who's mm-hmm. talking about the, the way that they came in the night and, and, you know, they took his eye and, mm-hmm. you know, all of these terrible things. But really not much more than just the awareness that, yes, they're coming. Right. So our next big sequence that we're kind of rushing towards is they go to sleep in the hall. And apparently uh, they pretend to sleep, which this is straight yeah. out of Beowulf. Like right. They're all in, in the mead hall waiting for the attack. 
and the attack here is done super well. Like mm-hmm. it, it builds very slowly. Uh, Fadlan is still our cipher, and he doesn't know what to do. He's not a warrior of right. this way, and he's. <laughs> we get what one of the say? one of the the better lines in the movie. Yeah. He says, "I'm not a warrior." Uh, I guess it's uh, oh, what's his name, Haragar, uh, Herger. Herger, uh-huh. um, played by uh, Dennis Storhoy, uh, tells him you're about to be right. Like <laughs> if, if you if you want to survive, you are going to need to fight this out. And so, you know, we, we just talked about McTiernan and how he he is always concerned about like space and understanding what's going on. Mm-hmm. This next sequence is the exact opposite of that. Yeah, um, it is pure chaos because again, Fadlan is our our central character and he has yeah. no idea what's going on. So this, uh, the first, you know, sort of Mead Hall action sequence is really them uh, being assaulted by an entire, you know, army of these people, right? It's not just one guy like Grendel in, in the original right. story. It's, it's an entire army of these people. Uh, so a couple of the Vikings do fall, mm-hmm. uh, just like in the, the original, you know, version of the story. Uh, they're decapitated, they disappear, and then the main thing that's noted is that they didn't leave any of their dead behind. Right. They take them all. Um, So, again, the implication is that they are cannibals, right? That they eat their dead. Mm -hmm. So they take all of those with them. Um, But it's this this really interesting and chaotic action sequence. There's really nothing else like it in the film. Right. Because everything from here on out feels much more poised, Mm -hmm. right? But this is, is pure chaos, right? These guys are just fighting for their lives. And the scene really reflects that in a, in a great way. The lighting is dark and mm-hmm. everything's in shadow. It's all sort of edge lit and shot from behind, which is really cool. But I love McTiernan's use of fire yes. in the film. There's so much really, really good use of torches mm-hmm. and fire to light things, which, you know, with even a bare understanding of how film works, that is super, super hard to it do. It is difficult. Um, and the film does have sort of a gritty, grainy look because mm-hmm. of it. But that natural light, I think, grounds it a lot, too. So they recover. Um, and then, you know, again, where we could be getting exposition, we really just get some big montages <laughs> of them yeah. sort of preparing the uh, sort of preparing the defenses because they know that they're coming back, right? Which is a reasonable assumption. But we're really sort of still dealing with Fadlan's inability to, to keep up with them in terms of combat. So mm-hmm. they've given him this big Viking sword, mm-hmm. right? Which is, is huge and cumbersome, and, and he just is, is completely incapable of, of wielding it efficiently. Right. So we see him you know, take it to a blacksmith and, and cut it down into something much more similar to... Uh, it's not really a scimitar. It's close. But it's it's but... like a, a curved, you know, sort of light blade yeah. that he feels much more confident with. But of course, the Vikings mock him for it mm-hmm. again. But he proves his skill uh, with it. So we're, we're slowly building him into the 13th warrior. Right, right. right. That is, is kind of what's going on here. But there are questions that could be asked. There are emotions, especially with Beowulf, that could be explored as Beowulf sort of... Because one of the things that gets kind of completely sidelined out of the original story is is Beowulf's sort of hunger for glory. Right. Uh, This movie doesn't really deal with that much. That's true. Um, You know, the the driving force of Beowulf as a character in the original is, is his uncompromising belief that he is destined mm-hmm. 
for greatness, right? right? That he will die the greatest warrior on the planet. People um, will tell his story. Right. You years know, it, and years. I mean, it's, yeah. it's something that I think the, you know, to mention the Zemeckis version again, it's something the Zemeckis version like overplays its sure. hands on, right? Mm-hmm. That it, it sort of removes his humanity, his heroic, his heroism because it's all self-serving. Yeah. Whereas this one downplays it entirely in the other direction. It's, yeah. Um, I do love the scenes between him and uh, Banderas where, you know, Banderas is writing. Yes. You know, is, is, is trans, as he says, trans, taking sounds and, and, you know, turning them into pictures or, mm-hmm. or whatever, um, which I think is sort of the nod to Beowulf's story being written. Right. Right. Like, I want to be written. I want the words, the sound to be turned into something else, mm-hmm. which, of course, is what Fadlan does. Right. Like, that's that's how the film comes to a conclusion is him writing this story down and immortalizing yes. what he's seen. You know, which, you know, basically making a legend out of Beowulf. Uh-huh. But it's not one of the driving forces of what's going on. So we get a bit of uh, a bit of infighting, a bit of political stuff going on. Uh, basically, Beowulf knows that Wiglaf is is going to betray them in some way. He's, right. he's coming for them. So he uses uh, Herger as, as bait, basically, to draw out his greatest warrior get him to fight and then take him out of the equation mm-hmm. to make sure that they don't get betrayed. Um, again, it's, it's a really cool scene. It's a great sword fight. Um, it does basically nothing to advance the plot. It feels right. diversionary, right? Yeah. The only real thing it does is it helps, I, I guess it helps uh, Banderas understand that the Vikings aren't thoughtless savages. Sure. Right? That there is some, some intelligence to what they're trying to do mm-hmm. and they understand, you know, how they can be betrayed by the people they're surrounded by. So there, there is a bit of that here, but it really does just sort of feel like a cool action sequence. You know, yeah. we're, we're in the middle of the second act here, right? The second act is where you've established your story, you know, your characters. Now it's time to, to deepen our understanding, mm-hmm. right? To increase the complications, to help us see that, there are more problems that need to be solved, but more importantly, help us care about these characters. Yeah. But there are, well, now I guess now there are only 10 Vikings left because two of them died, <laughs> but, but you know, there are 12 Vikings. Oh, yeah. We don't even know their names. It's hard to keep up with right? their names. Again, yeah. it's another like weird Hobbit thing. Uh-huh. Cause that's kind of the joke of the Hobbit. That's why they all have rhyming names. Is right. That you're not supposed to remember them all. It's like, they're just faceless dwarves. Yeah, no one cares. There's too many. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that's the joke. And this feels a bit like that. You know, we, we get Beowulf, we get Herger. Um, we get the maybe, red-haired dude. Yeah, Tony Coran is, <laughs> is Weef, you know. So, yeah. like, we have these characters, but we don't know them. We don't care We don't care, them. yeah. And, and this really feels like opportunity for us to develop a care for them. Mm-hmm. And, and it just isn't being done. Yeah. Um, you know, it... It's, it's badass. You know, it's really cool to watch dudes, you know, cut other dudes' heads off. Awesome. Right. But it, it, very, it does very little to help us care, you know. And, and given where this is headed, which is more big action sequences where people die, yes. if we're supposed to care, it's, it's not working. Yeah. 
so we kind of fumble around. There's a bunch of, you know, scenes of them continuing to prep and to watch and be ready. Some work, some don't. But the, the main thing that happens is they get attacked in the daytime, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, the apparently the 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 Windall are, are so confident that, you know, they, they are, are coming for them uh, no matter what. And of course we get a, a, a basically we see that, that it's not just a few, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot and they're coming for them at nightfall. Yeah. So they, they try to protect everybody. They try to bring everybody in, you know, Fudlon gets his you know, badass. uh, chainmail armor mm-hmm. and you know we get our next big action sequence all right and again it's all lit by fire There's more it's fire shot at night mm-hmm. i mean it's it's beautiful reflection on the water yeah it's it's just a gorgeous gorgeous uh, gorgeous film um you know fire is this terrifying thing but it's also this important thing in the film mm-hmm. but so we get another big action sequence at night and uh, this one is is violent. We get a slightly better look at what we're up against. Um, you know, they are human. They do seem sort of preternaturally powerful in mm-hmm. some ways. But they're wearing bear skins and animal skins. Mm-hmm. And so they have this sort of animalistic approach. It's like a Halloween costume that's a bear. Yeah, you know, it's it feels appropriate. Like, yeah. I don't know if they would have the resources to have anything more more complicated than that but it sure it, it does in practice it feels a bit cheap yeah. and and they're not really shot for horrific effect mm-hmm. right i think there's there's opportunity here especially given how sort of um chaotic the last action sequence was right there's opportunity here to play with you know more violence but it almost i don't know if this is Crichton or mctiernan in the final cut but this whole sequence, while you know accurate to, to Beowulf that you know there's there's escalation, mm-hmm. it feels a bit like his take on Seven Samurai, where you've got like the ten people <laughs> versus the the bandit army. Yes, and and as a result, it doesn't. I never really get a sense of threat out yeah. of that sequence, right? Like I know there are Vikings who are going to die. Yes, sure. But this is a huge force. Like, they should just be completely overwhelmed mm-hmm. no matter what. And they just kind of aren't. Yeah. And and I don't know if there's a really good reason why they aren't. Uh, at least we're not shown anything. We get good action. I mean, you know, you dudes knocking horses over and stuff, so that's all good. Um, but it's... It, a lot of it feels unjustified. And, yeah. and the fact that anybody survives this just doesn't make a ton they of shouldn't sense. have yeah. um there's not a huge justification for it but the huge revelation you know is that they're men mm-hmm. right but we get uh wendell uh, or, or the you know brindle basically mm-hmm. we just call him that uh he sort of you know rallies and pulls everybody away as they make their last stand um and pretty much everybody survives and that you know sort of pushes us forward so we you know, sort of get the the moment to relax for a little yes. bit, but then we we move very quickly into the next plan uh, because the 
they go consult another witch, right? Always helpful. Yes. Right? Always helpful to have another Check witch around. Um, and uh, she tells them that there is a mother. Mm-hmm. And the mother is the one that they have to kill if they want to defeat them for right. real. And so that becomes their, their next focus is finding them. And so, you know, in the original Beowulf, they go to Grindel's cave. Right. Right. And they hunt him down on his own ground rather than letting him come to attack them. So we're really getting this version of it here. Um, and this, this scene is nice. It's tense. Um, you know, they sort of approach their camp, if you can call it that. Mm-hmm. There's pretty obvious evidence of, of their cannibalistic you know, ways, cannibalistic <laughs> ways the way that they, they eat and save the bones. But again, it's another kind of special forces infiltration by yeah. being special forces. You know, they kind of like figure out how to get inside. Uh, again, the production design is amazing. It looks right? really these, good. These little bone huts. Uh, it's just out of this world. And there's so much of it. I mean, it feels yeah. like they built whole cities and then just kind of shot one street. It, yeah. It's kind of remarkable. Uh, but it, it does feel, you know, very lived in, very natural. Even though it's it's obviously all artificial, mm-hmm. um, but they so they infiltrate. Uh, we get a window into you know the culture of these eaters of the dead, um, and they are, are definitely eating the mm-hmm. dead while they're in there. Yeah, um, we don't draw a lot of attention to it, but it's it's certainly part of it. They're so dirty. It's so dirty, <laughs> so filthy. Um, you know, again the. Yeah. It, cannot be overstated that this film is grimy and dirty and gross but you know looking at what we've done with uh, you know the vikings now it sort of has that same same feel to it um you know we're getting ready to get a new assassin's creed game set in the viking world and quite frankly it looks looks like this a ton like this you know <laughs> like everything that they've shown it looks a ton like this wow or you know on projects inspired you know mm-hmm. by this film so they dig deeper into the cave and eventually discover the mother, uh, you know, Beowulf here. We do get a couple of really good moments between Fadlan and Beowulf and Beowulf and his men. You know, we, again, we see their willingness to lead him, but there's so much silence yeah. in this section. I mean, there's no conversation. It makes sense. I mean, you know, you're infiltrating in a cave. You're not going to be having chatty conversations about stuff don't talk right you know so it's completely justified yeah. but yet there are opportunities here for for character growth and development that yeah. we really don't get it's just we've got to get to the next thing that needs its head right. cut off right um and and i don't know if that's that's a really good choice right we get little moments here and there but it, it certainly could be more advanced all right so Beowulf is given his opportunity to uh, to kill the mother. Uh, the men hold off the onrushing cannibals. Mm-hmm. Beowulf goes back and and meets, for all intents and purposes, Grendel's mom. Right, right. in this one, it's just she's kind of a uh, a shamaness, I guess. Mm-hmm. She's sort of a a, uh, a witch, well, like a witch yeah. doctor. Right, yeah. It's it's very conventional. Like I kind of expected the movie to go somewhere a little bit more interesting, you know, in terms of her visual presentation, a little bit more crude. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously it's Beowulf. He, he yeah. kills her very easily, but not before he is wounded by, uh, she has like a bone claw Poisonous. and he gets poisoned. Right. 
so that is in keeping with the original story. Again, you know, Beowulf yeah. is is injured in a way that that leads to his demise uh, as he is uh, defeating Grendel's mother. In this case, he's poisoned, but successful. Yes. And so they come back out of the cave, make their escape. Um, you know, this is this movie is not long, right? This is right it's at really a hundred minutes, right? Yeah. Which you know. On this podcast, you know, Kate and I, we talk a lot about, you know, sort of the, the bloat of modern films. Sure. Right? You know, two two hours, two and a half hours. And then you get Avengers Endgame, which is like three hours, right. right? You know, And if I'm into a movie, I'm more than happy to watch a lot of it. But yeah. there is something to be said for the swiftness mm-hmm. of a 100-minute movie. Um, you know, the choices that you have to make to get through it. Right. And this movie, you know, this, you know, cave action sequence is a good 15 minutes of the back half of this mm-hmm. movie. So, you know, I, I like it a lot, but it, parts of it feel like it could be trimmed and replaced with other, right. you know, sort of like interesting dialogue and things right. like that. You know, we see Emotional a couple beats with the characters, right? Yeah. You know, to, to care about them, right? To really want them to be. To, to make it through this. Yeah. Um, you know, a couple more Vikings do die, sacrifice themselves. So, you know, and, and you know, do some cool things, but we get a, a big swim out. Um, and, and I, so the only way out of the cave is to, to swim out of the cave. They're trapped if mm-hmm. they don't. And so we get, uh, again, why McTiernan chooses to, to do this to himself, I don't yeah. know. Um, you know, I don't remember this being like a part of the original story. Actually, uh, it is. Is whenever, it? Okay. Um, right. You remember when Wigloff was smack talking early, like the first night right, at right. the Mead Hall? There's a story about Beowulf and how he and I think a friend had uh, oh, swam like to a contest. really far. That's right place and Beowulf had even I think there was a second instance where he was a good swimmer and he had even like uh, killed a beast under the water that had many right. tentacles yeah in the Zemeckis version we actually see that we race. do yeah, yeah that's right so I, I so was kind of surprised that that version. wasn't brought up earlier you know but the idea is that he's a really good swimmer and he can hold his breath for a really long time right and so you know it's their reference to that so that's mm-hmm. that's right so they, they get out of the cave. Um, you know, Beowulf proves his mettle, but he is obviously injured and yeah. dying. And so we move to the, the final confrontation. Basically, the remainder of the Wendell are coming to seek their vengeance for the death of, of the mother. Of the mother. Yeah. Um, we see Ibn Fadlan uh, pray. Really? The, is this the first time? I think it's the first time in the film that we yeah. see him pray. Um I think maybe there's a dropped theme somewhere in here. And a lot of them, in some ways, I think this movie is a lot of dropped themes. I think sure. there were elements of this film that got cut wholesale. Mm-hmm. Um, again, if Crichton had final edit, I think they streamlined it down to an action movie yeah. rather than an epic, right? Yeah. I have the feeling that McTiernan went in because the original title of the film was Eaters of the Dead. Oh, really? It was not the 13th Warrior. Oh. That was a late change. Um, and I, th- I think McTiernan was swinging for the Excalibur fences with this. I think he was very much attempting to make the best version of Beowulf that he could. Because okay. the last line that Ibn Fadlan says in the movie 
is that they have helped him become a better man of God. Right. This prayer right before the final battle is the <laughs> first time that we have had him even reference his uh -huh. faith in the film, which I could totally see this being like this, you know, sort of secular figure, mm -hmm. but then these experiences bringing him closer right to you know the faith of his people perhaps but we really don't get any of that right but so all of this is culminating everything is leading to beowulf in his death throes basically mm -hmm. inspiring his men for this final battle and so this is where the the poem right you know, the, the poem of the the vikings comes into it is he must inspire his men and so the poem is, is very simple, but it goes, Lo, there do I see my father, and lo, there do I see my mother, and my sisters, and my brothers. Lo, there do I see the line of my people back to the beginning. Lo, they do call to me, and bid me take my place among them in the halls of Valhalla, where the brave may live forever. All right, so again, this is now a very famous... Mm -hmm quote-unquote Viking poem. Viking poem prayer. That is, originates directly from this movie that has now been used in bunches of other media. <laughs> Again, supposedly based on, on Ibn Fadlan's account, but mm -hmm. who knows how accurate his rendition was. Right. Uh, but in, in essence, he inspires his men by, by you know reminding them of their forefathers and that even if they die, they will... will feast together in the halls of Valhalla right. and they all join in all you know the, well, the remaining ones there's not too many left at this point <laughs> and uh, and Fadlan even you know sort yeah. of joins in something he was horrified because this is this is the speech that he heard well he didn't understand it I guess but um it was translated for him yes uh, when they burned the ship and he was terrified he was horrified yes. by it like how, how terrible is this but now he he sees and, and joins in. He is a part of their brotherhood. Yeah. Uh, so again, another giant action sequence. Fel feels like we could have had a, a bit more sort of an emotional buildup right. as we get here. But man, the blood's a flying. Blood. Uh, everybody's covered Water in blood. Mud. It's raining. It's dirty. It's muddy. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it feels like, you know, a, a McTiernan action sequence, yeah. if I can put it like that. Um, it's very big. It's very bombastic. It doesn't necessarily all read, uh, you know, it, mm -hmm. it feels like it should have had a single sort of character. Like we should have stayed with Beowulf yeah. through it. Like it's he should have been It's kind of chaotic again. Yeah. We, we're back to the chaos. Um, which, you know, this could be part of the development. There may have been a much more strong narrative throughput in the original right. version, but now we've got to chop it up. We've got to shorten it for time. Um, you know, but, Needless to say, you know, Bendaris' character is is now He's kicking you know, butt. He's he's fully enmeshed in this group and, yeah. and he is a part of them now. But so the only way that we can really tell Grendel in the story is this uh uh helmet that he wears mm -hmm. uh with these big white horns. Uh Beowulf confronts him face to face, uh straight up knocks him off his horse with his sword, which is yeah. a really kind of neat thing. Um, you know, it's like you know, impossible force meeting immovable object kind of thing. Uh, Beowulf is successful, kills the Windle, which uh, of course drives all the rest of them 
away as they realize what have happened. And so the, the story of Beowulf is fulfilled. He defeats the, the leader of the monsters, if not the monsters themselves. Right. And, you know, there's great shots in this, you know, guys with wet hair turning mm-hmm. around. You know, again, it's, it's very iconic. It's stuff that we now, um, you know, sort of link with Viking iconography. Yes. You know, if you want to put it that way. And it's, it's McTiernan doing that work, you know, mm-hmm. sort of putting that in. Uh, and then, of course, we get uh, sort of a Conan-style shot, almost, <laughs> of Beowulf uh, kind of, of you know, planting himself in a, a makeshift throne at the mm-hmm. city walls. And uh, it, it is. It's a very triumphant moment. Um, I think it, you know, it, it feels very powerful uh, as Beowulf dies on his makeshift throne and, yeah. and uh, you know, the remaining members of his team, uh, you know, sort of take his body. And now he gets his glorious Viking funeral, yes. right? So they move him to his ship. They set it on fire and he, you know, is immortalized now in the, the eyes of, uh, Fudlan, who will take and tell mm-hmm. his story. <clears throat> and, and, you know, there is a, you know, I don't want to say there's no character movement in this movie. Yeah. You know, I think Banderas, you know, we, we really do get to see him transform. I, I believe that there was probably a deeper transformation sure. to that character than what we get on screen. But he's definitely changed by the end of the film. Yeah. You know, he's he's a different person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the ending is is very quick again yeah feels a little bit like we just we got to get out of this guys like yeah. we we gotta we gotta finish this guy up come on we we need to move and um and to its detriment i, I think you know these characters it, it would have been interesting to stay with them sure a little longer right um, to see more of, of their connection. But really, he just hops back on a long ship. Mm-hmm. On a long ship and, uh, you know, presumably returns home to write his memoir. The memoir right? The, story, the experience, yeah. which is the, the last shot of the film. Uh, is him, you know, transcribing mm-hmm. the events that uh, would eventually be, you know, uh, sort of diminish, you know, down through time. Right. But his last line is is that I might become a better man and a useful servant of God. Uh, again, if that that line, while it's a good ending line, I feel like it hints at something yeah. happening to him. We should have seen a lot more prayer and service, uh, right? From you him. know, <laughs> it, you know, he he connects with the Vikings in this like understanding of their their history and where they've come from, which is good. But we don't necessarily see that transfer into well, how did this change him, right? So again, to, to you know, sort of look at the the core complaint of this film, it's that I don't think that it necessarily is that the plot is irreconcilable or bad. Right. I just think that what's happening with the characters is so backgrounded. Yes. Because of the the breathless pace that it takes, mm-hmm. that we don't get a chance to really sort of engage with them and mm-hmm. and and see what is happening with them, right? It's just the the artifice right. of it, right? Beowulf is the warrior. 
and and we don't really get to see them and understand them. Where I think this film, more than a lot of other Beowulf adaptations, was perfectly poised to do so. Right. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not going to turn this into like a McTiernan cut discussion, but I would have been very interested to see what that cut looked like. Yes. Because um, this feels chopped up. Mm-hmm. You know, they had the action sequences. Those feel very much like McTiernan stuff for the most part. They're they're not edited quite as cleanly in some cases, which right. could have been part of it. But if he was removed in the midst of the process, he didn't have time to finish it. Right, like yeah. you know, sometimes, especially with action sequences, there's a lot that comes into the place. Now, the other piece, you know, that we have to discuss is that Crichton also threw out the score. Oh, um, so the score originally was Graham Revel and had incorporated. Song, uh, sung pieces okay that uh, you know supposedly had a very specific you know kind of like Viking flavor mm-hmm. to them um, Crichton didn't like that version uh. and so he threw out that score apparently it was over an hour long so it was oh, a wow. tremendous amount of music and then he replaced it he had uh, Jerry Goldsmith I think come in who he had worked with in a bunch of other things and it was a very dependable yeah. and, and solid got to do your music but produced what amounts to a very sort of straightforward score score supposedly in the original cut there was no final duel between beowulf and wendell uh or or grendel um the you know, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, the, the mother being mm-hmm. kind of weak. And that supposedly that is another thing that with McTiernan's version, she was like an old woman. Mm. Um, and, and supposedly Crichton didn't think that the, the brutal murder of an elderly woman was a good <laughs> idea for the film and changed that to be a much younger woman. Um, yeah. But sh- uh, Susan Willis, who was the original actress that played that character, is still listed in the credits as Wendell's oh, really? mother. Wow. Um, so, you know, we can see already that, that that last, you know, these last chunks of the film were the ones that, mm-hmm. that it seems like Crichton did the, did the reshoots on, you know. Um, You know, so again, I don't want to turn this into a you know Zack Snyder style like <laughs> demand for the McTiernan cut, but I, I really do think that McTiernan would have done more to mm-hmm. to bring some of these things to light. It sounds like he was more interested in telling a much more realistic version of this story, where you could see mm-hmm. where the legend would have create would have been built from, right? But it wouldn't have played out that yeah. way. Um, and, and I think that when Crichton took over, because he was invested in retelling the, the Beowulf story, we, we see it play out in a much more sort of traditional fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways to its detriment. So I think we've hit a lot of the, you know, sort of main things that we would want to talk about. I, I think the film is weak 
in terms of its script. Mm-hmm. Um, I like what's here. I think that the characters who do get a chance to engage on screen are rendered well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Herger gets a tremendous amount of screen time. Uh, he's kind of the main point with Footline. You know, Beowulf is always this kind of like extra entity. He's out there. But Fadlan never really gets to interact with him very right. often, right? He's like too high up the food chain yeah. for him. So he's always kind of dealing with Herger and and sort of getting information through him and then sort of periodically acting with Beowulf, which I, I think is a really interesting choice because it does reinforce that he's this observer. Right. right. And then when he really does enmesh with the group in the final battle, then it does feel different, right? Mm-hmm. There really is a change there. But it it really does limit our ability to get to know anybody. It does. You know? And that's that's a bit of a, a weakness. So the production design is is off the charts in this mm-hmm. movie. I think it looks really good pretty much universally. There are elements of it that are chintzy. Um, again, a lot of the, you know, when we finally do see the Eaters of the Dead and their, you know, their garb, it's a little, mm, yeah. um, you know, could have been cooler. But the overall world that they build, this village that they fight in. It feels really good. neat looking. It feels good. And I think yeah. that they've designed it in a way that is visually interesting on screen, but yet at mm-hmm. the same time has some, some really cool qualities. The music is, is pretty forgettable, all things considered. You know, I, I really yeah. would like to, to hear or have been able to hear Graham Revel's score um, for the McTiernan version. Uh, it's perfectly serviceable. Uh, sure. Jerry Goldsmith is great. He's, he's a very good film conductor but it doesn't it doesn't always fit with what this movie feels like it's trying to do right um, and so you know I, I think we could see more in terms of the acting and characters though I, I think this movie is is great Banderas is mm-hmm. really good despite being culturally miscast yes but he does a good job with the character and and really does try to to bring some soul to it in a, in a good way um, and then the rest of the cast, you know, the Vikings, as, as forgettable as many of them are, I, I think, are really good. Obviously, Beowulf is great. Mm-hmm. Again, he, he doesn't get a tremendous amount of time on screen to do cool things. Like, he, he does a lot. You know, he's cutting a lot of people's heads off and stuff. But, <laughs> you know, there's there's certainly yeah. room there for for more. Yes. And, and I guess that's really Just want more. It. There's just... Yeah. There's... This is a... a a swift film that feels kind of directionless and that it doesn't really have a core drive. Yeah. Right. Like it knows it wants to tell the story of Beowulf, but didn't necessarily do all of the hard work necessary to tell that mm-hmm. story. Well, which is so ironic given what Crichton was trying yeah. to do with eaters of the dead, which was tell the story of Beowulf. Well, I wonder if they're just banking on people being so familiar with that story already that they don't do the work for it. Yeah, I would say any adaptation of a classic story like that, I think that's a, a pitfall a you can problem. fall into. Is, yeah. is like, well, people already know that. You know, right. it's like it's like one of the things that people admired about like Spider-Man: Homecoming mm-hmm. was that nobody said, "With great power comes great responsibility." Yes, right. It's like, yeah. At a certain point, when you know that your audience knows things about your story, right, you've got a choice where you can either intentionally go a different direction mm-hmm. and show them something that they haven't seen but they'll they'll know enough to follow along right or you can just lean right into it and show them exactly what they expect mm-hmm. <clears throat> and this movie seems to take the approach of 
I'm going to show you what you expect. Right. Yeah. You know, whereas, you know, if McTiernan really did have a scene where Grendel's mother was this, you know, old woman and he never really killed Grendel. Yeah. You know, that seems to me like going in that other direction mm -hmm. of... I'm I'm going to reference this story, but I'm going to show you that that's not really how it happened. Right. You know, which is, is kind of interesting. That would be interesting. Um, whereas this just kind of gives us what we expect, mm -hmm. right? And and that isn't necessarily all that satisfying. So, despite all of those flaws, I still think Thirteenth Warrior is a really interesting and solid film. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you have any sort of passing interest in in Viking culture as mm -hmm. a, as we currently are, are dealing with it today, accurate or not, <laughs> um, I, I think it certainly is is a film to watch to be aware of where those things came from. Because yeah. I, I think that this movie is more responsible for those things than than we would probably like to give it credit for. But Definitely. it's again, I, the analogy to three hundred for me just feels very natural, mm -hmm. right? Like this is a, a, a hot rotted out stripped down mostly inaccurate version of what these people were like right. but it's so cool and feels so interesting that we're just going to run with it yeah and that is exactly what Zack snyder did in 300 like, right we're going to take the basics of what you know about this culture and then we're just going to make it seem so flipping cool yeah <laughs> that you're going to be like i'm buying myself a toga uh -huh. i'm getting a helmet with like a red thing on the top and I'm going to get a spear and I'm going to throw a javelin in my backyard. Yeah. Like it's, it's that kind of thing. And this and one's on the, I'm going to get dirty and grow a beard with a braid I'm going to have and braided beard. have a broadsword. That's right. I'm going to hang a broadsword above my bed. <laughs> and, and I'm going to take cantaloupe out in the backyard. And I'm going to chop it up. And, and by God, I'm a Viking. I'm right? a Viking. And, and, you know, we really do see that now. Like yeah. Viking culture is at this like peak of, pop culture interest at it the very is, least. Yeah. So maybe this is really, that's what we could say. This is where pop culture Vikings that's a good, yeah. started. It's a good right? summation. It's pop culture Vikings, just like pop culture Spartans. Mm -hmm. It's completely inaccurate. If you read any history of these people at all, it's totally wrong. But, but it's really <laughs> flipping cool. And yeah. so, whatever. So, recommend. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I, I've always enjoyed this film, despite its flaws. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it does a lot of really things you can feel it's it's held together with with duct tape and spit <laughs> you know there's there's really just not that connective tissue that yeah. you need to make a film feel coherent but as i said before it's worth it for the translation sequence alone yes it really definitely. is that is stellar language acquisition yeah if you you know it's, it's just a really cool way to visualize it because mm -hmm. film does a bad job of of helping us see processes like that take yes. place unless you really think through them and this film does so the the last segment since this is your first time here um mm -hmm. is we generally talk about a one thing right so one thing that we could do or change about this film if we could go back and fix it mm. that would turn it around right to where it wouldn't be this you know in the case of 13th warrior a colossal box office failure yes. and critical disaster so basically how could we fix it what is one thing we could change so i'll go first okay 
because because you haven't had time to prep. Well, I thought of a really hilarious one. Uh, oh gonna... no, then you go first. No, no I, I was sure. I was thinking I would cast Camille Nanjiani. Nun- how do you say his last name? Camille Nanjiani. Nanjiani <laughs> as the thirteenth warrior. Well, now for sure <laughs> with that thirsty muscle. Well, yeah, man. he's he's beefy now. He's he's built now. Yeah, he that's would be what perfect. I would do. Thirteenth warrior. That's my one thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, I. <laughs> I cannot stress how weird it is, story. how weird yeah. and wrong it is in 2020 <laughs> to be watching a film about this this great poet and scholar yeah. of, of Iraqi and Middle Eastern culture being played by Antonio Banderas. Yeah, it's, it's wrong. It's so weird. And yeah, yeah it's just... It I do, like it, him, but... He does a good job. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's 1999. The the concerns of the world were way different mm-hmm. and stupider and we were dumb. Yeah. We're still dumb. Yeah. But we were really dumb. Really dumb. Uh, yeah. I think Kumail Nanjiani would be a great lead <laughs> for this movie, especially now. I think he'd be fantastic. Yeah. Um, for me, the one, I mean, if there was one thing, I think there are lots of things. Yes. There are so many things that needed to happen to make this movie work. But for me, if, if there was one thing, I I think it's not removing John McTiernan from the final edit. Yeah. I, I really, I mean, and I, I know that's kind of an esoteric thing to say would fix the film, but McTiernan is, does not have a, a flawless record of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to make it seem like I think McTiernan is perfect. He is not. Um, he made, He's he's made bad movies. Mm-hmm. Um, he made Rollerball, for God's sakes. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, he made it after this, but Rollerball is a bad movie. Yeah, um, it's it's bad at every level. Um, but he, he guy made Hunt for Red October. Okay, yeah. And Hunt for Red October is also a, a book adaptation. Yeah, it's an adaptation of Tom Clancy's. Uh, you know, first major work, the one that Ronald Reagan called out on TV and said, this is a good book and <laughs> immediately sold a bajillion copies. Yeah. But Hunt for October is one of the most tense, well put together, well constructed films ever made. And mm-hmm. so I, I think the timing of this is unfortunate that the film started to sort of do badly. The test screenings were bad, which I can totally believe like, this is not a film that I think you could just walk into and be like, Oh, that was really good. Yeah, but I think pulling McTiernan out of the process before he even had the chance to, you know, theoretically sort of come to a final cut, Mm -hmm. because that's kind of what it feels like. Is he did the test screening cut? Like, here's what I think, and then it was bad, and then Crichton stepped in and took over. I I think that lack of singular vision is really obvious in this film. Like, there are pieces of it that work flawlessly. And then there are pieces of it that don't work at all. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that really is evident in this movie. And, and, you know, a lot of movies with troubled development, that's what happens. But I think it feels especially true here. So I, I think letting McTiernan run it out, you know, even if they, mm-hmm. they tested it a bunch more times, Crichton was called in as a consultant. But I think letting him continue to work on it would have been... I think we would have at least gotten something really, truly fascinating sure. out of it. It may not have been a blockbuster, yeah. but it would have been something that I think critically 
would have been interesting because he's swinging for these fences. I mean, mm-hmm. it feels like John Borman. It feels like you know Excalibur. It feels like somebody really trying to make an epic story come to life. Yeah. For chunks of it. And then other bits of it feel very small. Very shallow. And very shallow. So for me, I think just letting McTiernan have the film would have probably done a lot more. And I could be totally wrong. If I if I could have seen that McTiernan mm. cut, maybe it's garbage. But I kind of doubt it. Yeah, I doubt it. Because some of the things that I don't like about this movie are things that, from what I've been able to glean about the McTiernan cut, he did differently. Sure. So that's my one thing. Let's combine our one things. So let McTiernan direct Keep it. McTiernan and add And add Kamel Nanjiani. Yeah. Nice. I think we can do that. <laughs> so the other piece of this that we try to do is to um, give it a failure piece rating. Oh. Right. So from zero to a hundred. A hundred being a, a true failure piece. A masterpiece, but a failure. Oh. Um, so where does this fall for you? Right, so zero being no, it is just a legitimate, absolute disaster. Mm-hmm. A hundred being it's a disaster, but it's it's one that's so much so that it's actually kind of good again, mm-hmm. or maybe even brilliant again. Where would this one fall for you? I'm thinking like B plus range, like eighty eight percent. Oh, that's pretty yeah. high. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would put this a bit lower. Really, um, I, I think uh, it's it's definitely in that range for me, but it's kind of on the the bottom scale sure. this is more like a 77 more like a 77 yeah it's more like a 77 yeah. it's, because the, the end product is a very it's a very average sure film right it has moments of, of really 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 well done action and some really cool although very brief character work yeah but it really it has a problem gelling as a whole right it's not a movie that I can throw at somebody and say, oh, this you will love this 100%. Mm-hmm. But there are pieces of it that if you really do get into it, I think there's a lot below. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at. But sure. we're definitely in the same same ballpark. I can see that. All right. Well, um, I think that's a, still a recommend from both of us. I yeah, think it's, definitely. It's a, a solid flick. Um, you know, we don't really get McTiernan movies anymore. Um, he was involved in a wiretapping scandal and went to jail. Ooh. So he's not really around these days. That's, uh, that's unfortunate. He's out of prison, so that's good. <laughs> um, apparently he has a movie in pre-production, but we'll, we'll see where that goes. Yeah, um, we'll see. Because I, I would hate that his last film would be basic. Yeah. That's a military murder mystery with Samuel so L. Jackson. Basic. So basic, you guys. Um... <laughs> But uh, this is, is definitely one to, to seek out and, and take a look at because it is so interesting. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I think it's the seedbed. I think it's the seedbed of pop culture Viking fascination. So yeah. we may very well uh, owe more to it than we are kind of aware. aware. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, as always, you can find me at T Baskin on the Twitters. I don't know if you want to share yours or not. It's up to you. <laughs> you could follow me if you want, but it's mostly teacher stuff. So <laughs> sorry. So completely uninteresting. <laughs> um, you don't care about that stuff. Nobody no. does. Uh, teachers are are awful, terrible people who are just lazy. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> no, the opposite. Okay, wait. The strike opposite. that. Reverse, reverse it. it. Yeah. yeah, it's the opposite of that. Okay. 
but uh, you can, if you uh, need to get a hold of us here at the old uh, Failure Peace Theater headquarters, you can get us at FPS Theater on Twitter, mm-hmm. or you can send it a uh, electronic mail. Ooh, the email. That's right. It's it's mail, but it comes electronically, oh, which is important now that the post office is disintegrating. Uh, but you can find us at uh, failurepeace at gmail.com. Uh, so thanks for listening to this uh, very special uh, episode with our special guest, Heather. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, it's been fun. Uh, I will say that uh, you uh, wrote a paper on this. this I did, uh, back in graduate school, in grad school a million years ago. That's right, History of the English Language. And uh, uh. this was your... My hotel teacher didn't love it. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I didn't get an A, but I felt good about what I turned in. And uh, it's all about uh, that language acquisition I, scene. I right? had some some good uh, research to back up the validation of the language acquisition by immersion. And That's right. Yeah. I I felt pretty good about it. So yeah. you know. Said I- I still think that that is is possibly one of the greatest film scenes ever. Yes. Period. Hard stop. Um, regardless of the quality of the rest of the film. so 100. Uh, yeah. I, I think definitely worth that. But yeah. maybe even you can write a paper about it someday. Maybe. Listeners. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening. It's been a blast. Uh, we will certainly see you next week. I'm sure Catherine will be back from assignment by then. And uh, we will resume as, uh, as normal, but maybe with a few special guests down the road. So remember, dear listeners, that you can't really be a failure if you are loved and we love the 13th warrior and we love you too. Oh, love you guys. We'll see you next time. Have a good one.